0: From Public Radio International, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, March 15th. I'm Marco Werman. One year after the start of Syria's uprising, the UN raises the death toll to well over 8,000. Meanwhile, emails supposedly written by President Assad and his wife show a ruling couple in complete denial of the bloodshed around them.
1: It just shows you that sometimes the problem with these autocratic regimes is this bubble that can be created around the rulers that you just cannot penetrate easily.
0: And we'll hear from the children of the Syrian revolution coming up on The World.
2: Eyes The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at
0: pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It was a year ago today that the anti-government uprising in Syria began. Last March 15th, hundreds gathered in the southern city of Dera to demand the release of 15 children. They'd been arrested for writing graffiti on walls. Today, the United Nations marked the anniversary with a somber announcement. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon said the death toll from the Syrian government's brutal crackdown had now risen to well over 8,000. Children haven't been spared in the violence. The UN says hundreds are among the dead, and thousands have fled with their families to neighboring countries. Reporter Marine Olivesi met some Syrian exile children in Turkey.
3: All right, let's start with this. You
4: are a student... Question? Are, are you a student? Great. Today's English lesson How to Turn a Declarative Sentence into a Question, starting with how to even pronounce the word question. Which? Which? Question. 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 Question.
5: Function. Question. 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 Question.
4: As soon as the bell rings, 6th grader Mushab pulls another notebook out of his backpack and shows off some drawings he recently made. One of them features an old Syrian flag that's become the symbol of the revolution. A dagger drops blood on one end and a candle is burning on the other. Above the flame, the 12-year-old wrote the Arabic word for freedom. With a few pencil strokes, Mushab's sketch captures the two sides of the Syrian uprising. Violence and pain on one end, peace and hope on the other. Standing next to Mushab is his 12-year-old friend, Isak. <inaudible> Isaac says he's proud that kids like them began the revolution by drawing anti-regime pictures and slogans on the walls of their school in Deirah. He says he himself took to the streets last spring in homes with his older brother. But in the early summer, his brother was arrested at a Friday protest. He was released shortly afterwards, but the family decided to leave the country. Ishak is just one of many children here to have taken part in demonstrations against the Syrian government. Baha 13, is from a village in the northern province of Latakia. She says she felt empowered and energized during protests. With a large smile on her face, Baha says she even sometimes used the loudspeaker to shout God is great and other chants. Then her two brothers were arrested. She says they were involved in the armed insurgency and that they're still in jail. Her father was wanted too, so the family fled to Turkey in August. Baha recounts the harrowing trip to cross over the border. We had to walk and run for two and a half hours through the mountains. I swear we didn't stop for a second. It was a very hard journey. The hills were steep and it was slippery on the way down. The army was very close by. The Syrian army on one side, the Turks on the other. We were very scared. I was on the verge of crying out of fear. Like most students here, Baha has relatives in Turkey, so her family doesn't have to stay at refugee camps. Now safe but away from her brothers, Baha writes poems to express her anger.
6: One
4: of the lines is about Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Does he really think he's a lion? The poem goes. No, he's not. He's a shepherd and his dogs keep biting us. Fatima teaches at the school. She says art is the best way for children to get over their fears, but there's no easy fix for the trauma some of them have gone through. I have a child yesterday, he wrote a poem and he couldn't read it at all. He was hiding under this table. He was hiding because in Syria he saw a dead body in the garbage. He he was taking out the garbage and he saw dead people inside. So from that accident he became... Very weak, very terrified. He always uh, can't speak. Two small buses pull out in the street between the school and the olive grove. Once on board, Mohammed, a seventh grader, serves as a cheerleader and begins a protest song. The other kids in the bus pick up his tune. Abdul, the English teacher, says these kids are not just mimicking what they've seen on TV or on the streets. This, he says, is their revolution too. For The World, I'm Marine Olivezi at the Turkish-Syrian border.
0: You can see pictures of the Syrian students in Turkey at theworld.org. Those kids in exile represent one side of the uprising's reality. On the opposite side is Syria's president, Bashar al-Assad, Today, Britain's Guardian newspaper published details gleaned from what it says are Assad's personal emails. The paper says it verified the authenticity of several messages written by Assad, his wife Asma, and other regime insiders. If true, the emails offer remarkable insight into the regime. Zainab Tufekshi has been scouring through the documents. Tufekshi is at the University of North Carolina, where she teaches about the social impacts of technology and watches all things Arab Spring. She says the emails paint a picture of a Syrian regime unaware that it's in crisis.
1: They are ordering luxury items. They're joking about reforms. They're making fun of Arab League monitors. They're turning down all offers that political advice that sound remotely sane. And instead, he is worrying about how to order music from iTunes to get around sanctions. It's crazy.
0: Right. I mean, one detail is just uh, the day after the Syrian military began shelling the city of Homs, Bashar al-Assad sent his wife a video of country singer Blake Shelton singing God gave me you. It's just surreal.
1: It just shows you that sometimes the problem with these autocratic regimes is this bubble that can be created around the rulers that you just cannot penetrate easily.
0: But again, we have to be careful and point out that The Guardian newspaper has only verified the authenticity of some of the emails. But what does seem consistent throughout what we have read is that the Assad's and their associates are speaking pretty casual English. They're not speaking in Arabic and they're using acronyms like OMG.
1: That is not surprising at all. His wife is British-raised, and he, Assad was not meant to be the successor of his father. He, in fact, is in that position. He was only because the son, who was groomed for political power, died. He was supposed to be a eye doctor, and he was supposed to have a different kind of life, and this was a very sudden shift.
0: Now, this is a a very seemingly tech-savvy family, downloading to their iPads, purchasing music from iTunes, buying from Amazon.com, but I didn't realize those sorts of transactions, if indeed they happened were permissible given the sanctions on Syria. How does that work?
1: It appears that the sanctions in place did not stop anyone in the Syrian regime's you know, higher echelons from purchasing whatever they wanted to, including you know, Mrs. Assad's pension for furniture and Christian Louboutin shoes and whatever else she wanted she was able to get just using proxies, friends, fake addresses. It's just very easy. If you have money and spend just an extra few minutes to set up on front account, you can obviously purchase a lot of these things and have them delivered.
0: Now, again, many of these emails haven't uh, been confirmed as to their authenticity. But I'm wondering, uh, Zeynep, as you read through, were there any details that surprised you and set off alarm bells that maybe they aren't real?
1: Surprisingly, they read fairly authentic to me. I mean, obviously, we can't discount the possibility. Some fake ones have been slipped into this, and we can't go through every single one and confirm everyone. But in terms of the political tone, they do very much track the kind of leadership Assad has shown in Syria. They also track very much with the kind of lavish lifestyle these two had. Before Syria got exposed as a brutal dictatorship that it is, what's striking to me is that there's a lot of fashion spreads about Asma Assad in you know, a couple of years ago. Well, the very yeah. things, the, the the very things that at the moment we're ridiculing her for, are the very things that a lot of Western media and high level famous people actually praise her for. You know her shoes and her taste in fashion and how elegant she was. So I'm sure she's thinking. The regime hasn't really changed. Yes, the killing has ramped up a lot, you know, but the regime in terms of this repression of his people is a continuation. But now she's being ridiculed and condemned while two years ago she was getting fashion spreads in vogue.
0: You know, perhaps the oddest email that I have seen is a a YouTube link that President Assad supposedly sent to an aide, and President Assad is kind of cracking up over this video, which seems to be produced by Assad sympathizers, and they're kind of sticking it to the Arab League, remember when those monitors went in. This video features the fat controller from Thomas, a tank engine, and kind of a mock-up of how to uh, attack a building, and there's a toy car with a tea straw. What is going on in there?
1: It just shows you that they're living in an alternate reality, and it also makes it clear that it might be very hard to sit down and negotiate with someone who is so divorced from reality.
0: Zainab Tufekci, a professor at the University of North Carolina, where she teaches about the social impacts of technology. Thanks very much. Thank you. We're running a special edition of The World Tomorrow, dedicated to veterans returning from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and it's veterans who are driving the coverage. For the past few weeks, we've been asking them and their families to share their homecoming stories and the issues they're dealing with. We've had hundreds of responses, responses like
7: this. My name is Karen Coyle, and my husband is Staff Sergeant Edward Winkowski. He's been deployed to Afghanistan twice. We met as Peace Corps volunteers in Kenya in 1989, and we were married in 1992. And when we met, my husband had already been in the military um, several years back, and we he had been honorably discharged. Neither of us really had any intention of being involved in the military again. And then September 11th happened, and my husband really felt compelled to re-enlist in the National Guard. His first tour of duty in Afghanistan was in 2008, and he saw a lot of horrible things. Some of the guys he served with are still being treated for PTSD, but he seemed actually fine until he had to return to work, and then he kind of was struggling to find his place again. At one point, he called the VA and asked for a referral to a therapist, and 48 hours after he asked for help, he had effectively talked himself out of any therapy. Um, Before deploying to Afghanistan, he had set been all set to take courses, to switch careers from public administration to some kind of green engineering. And he's usually really goal oriented. So I expected that he would continue with his plan when he got home, like he said he would, but he didn't. He got the money together, he got the application, he did everything he needed to do, but actually take the course. It was kind of like he was stagnant. Instead of fulfilling his goals, he ended up re-enlisting and returning to Afghanistan. He's currently finishing his second tour. I have no idea what's going to happen when he gets home. I feel that if the military had a real commitment to servicemen and women, they'd make it mandatory that anybody returning from a theater of war would undergo, like, probably 12 weeks or so of behavioral and cognitive therapy, um, especially those who return to civilian jobs.
0: What's your view? If you want to tell your story or share a point of view, text the word RETURN to 69866 on your cell phone and we'll let you know how to take part. It'll cost no more than a regular text message. That's the word return to 69866. This is PRI.
2: The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. China's Communist Party booted a controversial official from his job as a municipal party chief today. Bo Shi Lai fashioned himself as a populist leader who fought crime and led the masses in singing songs from the Cultural Revolution. Well, just yesterday, Prime Minister Wen Jiabao said that China needs political reform, not a return to the mistakes of the Cultural Revolution. Many Chinese would agree, including some democracy activists now in exile. The world's Mary Kay Magstad caught up with some of them in Taiwan.
6: Here's a scene you won't see in China these days a packed college classroom listening avidly to some of the leaders of the 1989 Tiananmen Square pro democracy movement talk about China's prospects for democracy. Some of the students here are from the mainland, and one of the Tiananmen leaders is Wang Dan, now a college lecturer at Taiwan's Tsinghua University. He says many successes come from failure. Just because 1989 didn't succeed doesn't mean another attempt won't. Later, Wang Dan said anything can happen in China,
5: but he's hopeful. Two things can be the base for democracy. One is the Internet, another is young generation. So that's what we are doing. We are trying to combine Internet and the young generation. That's the future.
6: Another former Tiananmen student activist who spent time in prison challenges the mainland students here. His name is Li Hung-ching. He says, look, the question is how you see yourself. Do you want to be a cog without any independent character, or do you want to be a real human being? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being a cog. Society needs cogs. But what it needs more are individuals with independent character and independent thinking. And then there's Bao Pu. He's the son of a former government official who served under pro-reform Communist Party Secretary Zhao Ziyang at the time of the Tiananmen demonstrations. Because of that, Bao Tong went to prison for almost a decade. His son now runs a publishing company in Hong Kong. He encourages the mainland students in the classroom to think about why China's Communist Party limits free expression.
8: So, now,
6: he says... The problem is the Communist Party doesn't want you to have free speech because they believe it will threaten their regime. They instill the idea that once we have a free press, society will be in chaos. But is Taiwan in chaos? Taiwan is a democracy and not in chaos, as pro-democracy advocates like to point out when China's Communist Party says democracy is not appropriate for a Confucian culture. The party also says China doesn't need an imported Western concept. Former Tiananmen student leader Wu Shi says that's an absurd argument.
3: Because the communism itself is a Western idea they imported uh, a century ago, we would really like to ask the Communist Party one question. Which aspect of the Western values that they describe is not suitable for China? Freedom, equality, or citizen rights?
6: In the classroom, the students ask some pointed questions, some sounding a lot like the Communist Party line. This woman says many Chinese agree with what former leader Deng Xiaoping said, that it was worth sacrificing a few lives to end the Tiananmen protests. Actually, it was a few hundred lives, so China could have economic prosperity. Later, I asked the student how she views prospects for democracy in China, Before answering, she confers with a couple of classmates.
9: Actually,
7: it's a little bit sensitive because I'm also a journalist before for the mainland China, so maybe I can't talk.
6: For added effect, she and her classmates, also mainland Chinese journalists, make X's with their arms, like the label on a bottle of poison. Bao Pu says he knows not all mainland Chinese students here are going to be swayed by the arguments they hear. Still, he thinks it's worth trying. It doesn't
7: take much, actually.
8: You know, my own experience is when I was in China, I grew up in China, something that I read you know, got me thinking. My experience was, was the Einstein's you know, essay where he said the state is constantly lying to the young people. So if, if there's a one student learn something and uh, you know start thinking that would do it you know it will affect you know their their own life.
6: One mainland Chinese student, a 22-year-old electrical engineering major, says he was first drawn to Wang Dan's class here on recent Chinese history out of curiosity.
8: At first, uh, I I just want to see what a really student leader at that time will be, and after I take their first. Uh, one or two classes, I think uh, he really know a lot about China. And he really showed hope and gave us some thoughts and trigger us to think more about China.
6: The student says he's proud of his country, but he wants its future to include democracy, including electing top leaders. Meanwhile, he asks not to be named. He thinks it might get him in trouble. After the forum ends, most of the students stay on to hear another three hours from Wang Dan as he gives his impassioned final lecture on why China needs democracy. He says if he were back in China and running for president, this gets a laugh, he knows what he would push for first, judicial reform, rule of law, just laws applied to top leaders as much as to common citizens. In this Taiwanese classroom, it still seems a dream. But former Tiananmen student leader Ua Kaixi says it's a dream that keeps him going. And, like Wang Dan, he puts his hopes in China's networked, sassy, younger generation that feels entitled to speak and be heard.
3: I'm quite confident that they will find a good way. And then once they do, we are willing to jump in to be a supporter.
6: Do you think you'll see democracy in China in your lifetime?
7: Absolutely.
3: You need to know that I'm in an exile, In living in exile is unbearable. It's already a
0: spiritual torture. I have to have hope.
6: Premier Wen Jiabao spoke this week about his own hopes for political reform. But the term is vague, and over Wen's nine years in power, government controls on free expression have tightened, while discontent over corruption, mismanagement, and abuse of power have grown. It will take courage for China's Communist Party to do what Taiwan did— move from being an authoritarian state to one where the people are the final judges of whether leaders are governing well. At least some mainland Chinese students visiting Taiwan and hearing China's pro-democracy exiles hope they have seen the future. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad, Xin Chu, Taiwan.
0: Now, here's a quick note from Spain. Researchers there say heavy backpacks worn by many kids these days can, surprise, surprise, lead to back pain. Study says it's especially true for girls. The world's Jerry Haddon can relate. He lives with his family in Barcelona, Spain.
10: You know, I have a pretty strong feeling that our seven-year-old daughter, Lula, is among them. By complete coincidence, just this morning, I said to her she was leaving for school, you look like some combat trooper heading out on a mission. She had on her normal huge book bag over her back, a second backpack across her chest with her swim gear. Under one arm, she had one of these giant oversized folders that you close with little elastic bands on the corners. And in the other hand, a plastic bag with a bunch of clothes a pal had lent her during a sleepover. And this was a fairly typical morning. And I have to say, really different from those of my own school days. I remember usually showing up to school with one pen and my homework stuffed in my back pocket. You know, now that I think about it, Marco, this is an anecdote I probably won't share with my kids until they're done with their own studies.
0: Yeah, probably better that way. The world's Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. I'm Marco Wurman. Coming up, an underwater menace called a brinacle.
9: It just looks like this, this finger of ice reaching down to the seafloor. And as they hit the seafloor, forming this stream of ice, anything that's caught in the stream of ice just is trapped and frozen to death.
0: That's Ahead on The World.
2: The world is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com
0: slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It must have been a very tense meeting today between Defense Secretary Leon Panetta and Afghan President Hamid Karzai. The meeting in Kabul was preceded by news that the U.S. soldier accused of killing 16 Afghan villagers on Sunday had been flown out of Afghanistan. After his talks with Panetta, Karzai put out a statement demanding that American troops pull back immediately from the country's rural areas and villages. Karzai also said the U.S. should speed up the transfer of security duties to Afghan forces. Panetta later repeated for reporters what he'd said to Karzai about Sunday's killings.
4: I assured him that, uh, first and foremost, uh, that uh, I shared uh, his regrets about what took place, uh, that we extended uh, our deepest condolences to the to the families, to the villages, and to the Afghan people uh, over what uh, occurred. And uh, I again pledge to him that uh, uh, we are we are proceeding with a full investigation here, and that we will bring uh, the individual involved to justice.
0: That individual is now in Kuwait, despite Afghan calls for a trial in Afghanistan. Eugene Fidel teaches military justice at Yale Law School. He also served as a judge advocate in the U.S. Coast Guard. Fidel says that what happens next in this case will most likely be determined by the principles of military law, starting, he says, with an investigation similar to a police investigation. The
10: next thing that happens under military justice is a separate investigation that is in the nature of a preliminary hearing. It's called an Article 32 investigation, and you cannot conduct a general court-martial without there having been an Article 32 investigation. It doesn't produce an indictment. It simply produces a recommendation to some senior officer as to what charges, if any, should be brought to trial.
0: So you're talking a court-martial Article 32 investigation. Is this soldier on, uh, subject only to military law or also U.S. civil law?
10: Well, the soldier is subject to U.S civilian criminal law as well. But I would be awfully surprised if this wound up in federal district court. I mean, you know, we live in an era where Congress has fallen in love with the military courts. And I I can't imagine why this case would be taken to a civilian federal court. There's another question, which is, can the soldier be prosecuted in the Afghan courts? And there, I think the train has left the station. We have an agreement with the Afghan government that basically exempts US military personnel in that country from Afghan criminal jurisdiction. So I think the forum here is going to be the US military justice system.
0: Just to get a sense of consistency, suppose there is a foreign soldier deployed to the US, and it does happen. There are exchange programs for foreign military on US bases. And let's say that foreign soldier goes on a shooting spree here. Where does he or she get tried?
10: It depends on whether this is a status of forces agreement or other understanding between the two countries. The status of forces agreements try to regularize that process instead of having it a matter of guesswork or ad hoc negotiation every time there's an incident. We do have, for example, a status of forces agreement with Japan. And under that agreement, we've had a string of incidents in Okinawa, typically involving rape charges or other sexual assaults. And those GIs have been prosecuted in the Japanese courts. That is permitted under the U.S.-Japan status of forces agreement.
0: One question a lot of people have been asking, so far the name of this man has not been released. Is that typical? Is there a legal basis or a reason for this?
10: Well, it's certainly not typical the government in a case like this would typically make the name available. This is the first time that I can think of in the United States where the name of a soldier accused of a a serious offense has been withheld this long. What we have to keep in mind is that a court-martial is not part of the regular federal court system. And because a court-martial is technically part of the executive branch of the government, its records are subject to public inspection only under the Freedom of Information Act, which has an exemption for ongoing investigations. So if the government wanted, it could really try to resist public and media curiosity on this for quite some time. But I can't imagine that happening. I mean, sooner or later, that name is going to get out. And certainly by the time there are any public proceedings, which I think are likely in the next, let's say, couple of weeks.
0: Now, this isn't the first time in the last decade there's been a horrible incident involving U.S. service people and local populations. Another one was the Haditha killings in Iraq, uh, for instance. Has the U.S. military been able to deal with these cases in a way that you feel inspires confidence in the military justice system? Long pause. And a deep breath, I noticed.
10: And a deep breath. There certainly have been cases where I've wondered whether – public confidence was really engendered by the administration of justice under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. I do believe that some of the outcomes are surprising, either cases that never got the trial or cases that led to less than the full force of the law being brought to bear or cases where there were acquittals. The system generally produces fair outcomes, but when you have A sufficient number of data points where you find yourself scratching your head. And I think it's time to pull back and say, "Uh, let's take a look at this system systematically. We have a good system, but it's a system that could be made substantially better and substantially more credible.
0: Eugene Fidel teaches military justice at Yale Law School. He's the co-author of Military Justice Cases and Materials. Thank you very much indeed. My privilege. Greece got word of another bailout today, this one from the IMF. It's all part of an effort to keep Greece from defaulting. Another part of that is the European Union's task force for Greece. It's made up of specialists who've been trying to help Greece get its fiscal house in order. Today, that task force reported on how well Greece is doing on that. But given how far that country still has to go, some wonder whether a more permanent EU presence might be required to help Greece to oversee reforms. The world's Clark Boyd has the story.
3: Greece got a mixed report card today from the European Union's task force. They say Greece has made some progress in tax collection and in using available EU money for starting projects. But still...
1: A lot remains to be done.
3: Horst Reichenbach, a German, leads the EU's task force for Greece. Today he praised the Greek people for making substantial sacrifices and said the EU remains ready to help Greece implement reforms.
1: A great number of member states are prepared with uh, their expertise to be available for Greece.
3: But for some Greeks, foreigners telling them how to manage their money brings back memories of the years following World War II. That's when the U.S. Secretary of State, George Marshall, launched what became known as the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe. Here is Marshall addressing Congress in 1948. This
4: unprecedented endeavor of the new world to help the old is neither sure nor easy. It is a calculated risk. It is a difficult program, and you know far better than I do, the political difficulties involved in this program.
3: And there are political difficulties these days as well. The economic crisis has created tensions within the EU, and those tensions make a new Marshall Plan harder for Greeks to swallow. Last month, Greek protesters burned the German flag in Athens and chanted, Nazis out! But others, like Aristos Doxiades, welcome outside help.
1: I, as a Greek, having seen the amount of wasted capital that Greek administration um, handled over the past 30 years, I would not be averse to having uh, an international body controlling this.
3: Doxiadis is an economist and venture capitalist.
1: My concern about the Marshall Plan is that it may detract us, and I mean mainly Greeks, um, from actually focusing on how to build viable businesses, export-oriented businesses. As I said, the Marshall Plan will probably not be a direct route to it. It would help indirectly. But we need to focus on on how we build Greek businesses now.
3: That's a tall order in a country where business-stifling bureaucracy and corruption have become a way of life for the past three decades.
1: I don't think we need more money. I think we need
3: to, to use the money that we're getting much more properly. Philip Ammerman is a Greek-American businessman. He's lived in Athens for years now. Ammerman says that when Greece joined the EU, the subsidies and money the country received amounted to a Marshall Plan. But the state wasted too much of it building state-owned companies staffed with overpaid political appointees. Ammerman says it's time Greeks found their own solutions to their problems. The fact of the matter is, you know, this is our mess and we we have to clean it up. It's It's not Germany's responsibility. It's not Holland's responsibility. It's our responsibility. And I think the sooner we realize that and the sooner we really get down and come up with a plan which is not imposed by others, but it's a plan which you know that at least two or three parties here can agree with, you know, then we're going to start seeing signs of improvement. But even Ammerman admits he's skeptical whether the Greek state can come up with a workable plan on its own. Another Greece watcher who thinks the country needs outside assistance is former U.S. diplomat Brady Kiesling. He looks back to the first Marshall Plan.
0: The United States took the blame and in some cases was responsible for forcing Greece to reform its economy after World War II. I think the willingness of the EU to play the role of bad guy in making these reforms is vital. I think they're going to have to suck it up and do it,
3: otherwise Greece will not do it on its own. Anne Kiesling says this is a long-term project. This commits both Europe and Greece to a very
0: close delicate minuet over a decade. They will look at each other um, with a fixed stare,
3: (laughs) but (laughs) they will smile at the end. Well, we can always hope. For the world, this is Clark Boyd, Athens.
0: weather forecast for today's GeoQuiz location is cold. This time of year, temperatures can get down to minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit. We're looking for an American scientific research station located on Ross Island in Antarctica. A BBC team used it as its base for shooting an episode in a TV series called Frozen Planet. The film features something called underwater brinicles. These seawater icicles are so cold, they're deadly to touch
9: you see these poor starfish and sea urchins trying to get away just getting trapped by the ice and wriggling around and then very very quickly succumbing
0: see for yourself we have extraordinary video of one of these icy fingers of death at the world.org and while you're at it don't forget to try to name the u.s research base at the southern tip of ross island As Israel's short cold season comes to a close, a new season kicks off with vigor. Cat mating season. Yeah, that's right. And it won't end anytime soon. The mild desert climate in Israel makes it possible for cats to be in heat nearly year-round. So you've got a country with a whole lot of amorous cats. Zach Rosen has our story.
8: I moved to the center of Tel Aviv last summer. And one of the first things I noticed was all the free-roaming cats. Okay, I'm walking out on my porch and... Oh, hi! There's a cat. This black and white one lives on our porch. Hi, Choochie. They're everywhere. There's one, an orange and black one, sitting on a car. A recent study from Tel Aviv University estimated around 39,000 free-roaming cats in Tel Aviv. That's like one cat for every ten people. Oh. And there's another one. But unlike the people, a lot of the cats look mangy or sick and the noises they make in the middle of the night. It's like a war zone out
5: there. My name is Riva Meyer, and I'm the Overseas Development Director of Let the Animals Live, which is the leading animal welfare organization in Israel.
8: Riva lives in an apartment in suburban Tel Aviv. She has eight indoor cats and another 15 that she feeds in her backyard. She's got a bunch of tiny red cuts on her fingers to prove it. She says a lot of these cats aren't meant to live indoors. Most of them were born on the streets, and that's where they're comfortable.
5: They don't know anything else, and they don't want to be inside a flat, okay? The feral cats, they cannot live inside a flat, okay? Because the closed area really uh, makes them f- very, very frightened, okay?
8: Most street cats, she says, only live to be one or two years old. But despite their sadly short lives, they still manage to reproduce at amazing speed.
5: In Israel, the rate of birth is very uh, high. And uh, three, t- three times a year, at least, a female gives birth. And then when their kittens are about five, six months old, they give birth again. It's So the face. kittens
8: give birth when they're only five but, months old? Exactly. Even though these cats don't have owners... Thousands of people in Tel Aviv feed them every day. It's actually become something that unites people here.
6: Women, men, old people, young people, Jewish, Arab, uh, religious, not religious.
8: That's Dr. Zvi Galin. He's the director of Tel Aviv's veterinary department. He says part of the reason there are so many cats in Tel Aviv is because of all the
6: people that feed them. Every place that you are going to see a group of cats, someone is putting them to something to eat. Otherwise, I'm not going to be here. In the late 80s,
8: Riva Meyer was one of the people who actually brought the idea of spaying and neutering to Israel. Before that, population control meant poisoning the streetcats.
5: They used to put it in fish, smelly fish, and we'd struggle with it for hours, and it's it's awful.
8: But now that's illegal, and spaying and neutering has become the norm. But Riva says it hasn't become part of the culture yet and that there needs to be much more emphasis on the amount of cats getting fixed.
5: The municipality of Tel Aviv has good intentions, but still they don't keep up with uh, the amount of cats being born on the street. They have to do at least 100 spaying and neutering a day uh, to keep up with the rate of uh, uh, cats giving birth at the moment.
6: For the moment, we, have to, we can do 10 cats today, so 10 cats are going to reproduce, less say, kittens. It's something. For me, if I can help one, I can help one. It was good to help thousand, but I'm not able to do it.
8: But for the street cat population to decrease, research shows that at least 80% of the cats need to be spayed and neutered. There's another one. And as of now, Tel Aviv is not meeting that mark. And another. So at least for the foreseeable future, Tel Aviv will be full of cats. And another. For the world, I'm Zach Rosen in Tel Aviv.
0: This is... PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Warning, our next story might send a shiver down your spine. First, the setting. The frigid place we asked you about in today's GeoQuiz is McMurdo Station in Antarctica. That's where a BBC team went to film an episode for the Frozen Planet TV series, which premieres this weekend on the Discovery Channel. It's pretty stunning. Now, the stars of this episode are something called brinacles of death, BBC producer Catherine Jeffs described them for us.
9: They are essentially formed as the ice cold brine, which is released when um, sea ice forms, gathers together in these ice channels, and then actually begins to drop through the sea water below. It's much denser and it's far far colder, and so as a, as it's dropping, it actually allows a tube of ice to form around the brine. So sometimes they can reach right down to the bottom of the seafloor and start forming a stream of ice along the seafloor and just capturing anything in its path.
0: Listeners can actually see one of these brinicles growing under the ice shelf online. Why are these salty ice formations so lethal?
9: Well, we, we called them ice finger of death because it, it just looks like this, this finger of ice reaching down to the seafloor. And as they hit the sea floor, forming this stream of ice, anything that's caught in the stream of ice just is trapped and frozen to death. And you see these poor starfish and sea urchins that are trying to get away, just getting trapped by the ice and wriggling around and then very, very quickly succumbing. It's this kind of strangely beautiful form of death, I have to say absolutely stunningly gorgeous, quite sinister as well.
0: And what amazes me too, besides the brineicle, is just the rich colours under the ice
9: shelf. Absolutely. So for me, producing this programme, which is the winter programme of Frozen Planet, I was very excited about doing this particular sequence because my film was going to be very dark. Um, I wanted it to be dark and, and and have that atmosphere of winter. And this was a chance to have the beautiful colour because it it is just such a a stunningly gorgeous scene with all the ice refracting the light. Mm. It, it's surprising to see what looks almost like a coral reef down there.
0: The other stars of uh, this story are the cameramen who captured these images, in particular Hugh Miller, who improvised an underwater time-lapse camera system to record the growth of these icicles, these brinicles. Pretty fascinating.
9: Well, we knew that we wanted to capture the life of the communities of invertebrates down there, but they move incredibly slowly. And so right from the start, when we were brainstorming with how we wanted to try and film the life under the ice, we knew that we were going to have to bring them to life with time lapses and speed up the way they move. So Hugh Miller had in his mind these ideas about what he wanted to do, what he wanted to build. He unfortunately hadn't quite had time to build it before we went down there. So we, we actually left for McMurdo, for Antarctica, with a couple of you know, boxes with electronic components that he knew he wanted to put together. But it was only when we were down there that every day after filming Under the Ice, we would come back up and he would... Be there, well, you know, cause soldering together this kit and, mm. and <laughs> building these boxes. So it was quite touch and go as to whether we would get it done, but he did.
0: Now you didn't have any uh, confrontations with these marine invertebrates, but one mammal was not happy with your uh, encroaching on their turf.
9: That's right. Well, I mean, obviously we we saw the barnacles forming, and so Hugh Miller still hadn't finished his time lapse boxes. Mm. You know, the pressure was on when he did finally complete the time lapse build. Uh, we deployed it for the first time in front of the But We were very, very excited, but knowing that we'd have to leave them there for about eight hours. When the guys went back to retrieve the kit, they found it sort of knocked over and pointing down at the sea floor. Uh, we had no idea, you know, when it had been knocked over, but we knew that this uh, male seal had been displaying in the territory, so we were in in his territory. I don't think he quite appreciated the fact that there was this, these new items in there, and so he'd kind of knocked them over. <laughs> um, it was only the next day when we put the the kit back down in front of the, the brinacal formations, hoping that he wouldn't uh, knock them over this time, and, and luckily he must have got used to it. So we went back down, the kit was up and running, and we got the shot.
0: I guess you just have to ask him permission next time you want to take his picture. It's <laughs> extraordinary footage. Catherine Jeffs, a producer with the BBC's Natural History Unit. Thanks so much. Thank you. And thanks also to our texting game winners today, Kim, Michelle, and Anders, representing Philadelphia, PA, Orange, California, and Madison, Wisconsin. You can put your hometown on the map by playing along next time. Just text GEOQUIZ, one word, GEOQUIZ, to 69866. Now that we all know about Antarctica's icy fingers of death, how about some life-affirming tunes from Trinidad? We're going back to the 1970s and the music of Trinidad's Black Truth Rhythm Band. Steel drum music and the rhymes of calypso singers may be the Caribbean islands' musical signature. 40 years ago, though, Black Truth Rhythm Band was doing something different. They played Calypso, yes, but they dosed it carefully into a bigger stew of American funk, Nigerian Afrobeat, and global soul.
8: Brother, sister, we must share the love from right the year. Let
0: us all plan together and aspire to be greater and be proud once again. We came along, long, way, looking now hand in hand you to brotherhood of man. Black Truth Rhythm Band recorded only one album. It was called Ifatayo, and upon its release in 1976, it became an underground classic. It's been out of print for years, but now it's been reissued for the first time on CD. And frankly, it's one of the best things, period, new or old, that I've heard so far this year.
7: Awake, awake, she's sleeping warrior. Put on thy armor of courage.
8: Hold fast thy garment of salvation. For the, time of
0: this the band's lead singer and founder was Oluko Imo. Since he played Afrobeat on an island known for its muscular calypso culture, Imo gained musical street cred plenty. Most notably, he caught the ear of Felakuti, the Nigerian pioneer of Afrobeat. Oluko Imo went on to record with Fela and performed with Fela's band, the Egypt 80. Black Truth Rhythm Band had broken up at that point, and they were on a path to become a musical footnote, albeit with some cult status. But with the reissue of their one recording, that could change. We'll leave you with one more track from Ifatayo. This tune is called Umbala. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow.
2: is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Plowshares Fund, investing in peace and security worldwide, plowshares.org, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. And NASA, leading research on the Earth and its climate from the vantage point of space. PRI Public Radio International